Hi, this is Joel Selvin, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast, with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, songwriters streaming royalties set at 15.1% in long-awaited CRB ruling. From Hypebot, musicians, the algorithm doesn't owe you, but it definitely owns you. Also from Hypebot, why are CDs trending in 2022? Well, Jay, we've got so many things to talk about besides these three articles. As we hit episode number 99, let us... Engage, shall we? And start with the show right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. to you, Jay Gilbert, here on a Saturday of a three-day weekend in Southern, Southern California and the ah. United States. For those listening outside of uh, the country, that you may not have a three-day weekend, but we do here, and we're excited about that for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a beautiful weekend. It was so funny. You and I always uh, talk prior to hitting record, and uh, we had so much to talk about. You know, that was like almost an hour ago <laughs> before, uh, I just looked up before like, we hit record. Wow. It's too well. We because there's just so we have, much we to catch talk up, about. and then we 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 talk about what we're going to talk yeah. about, and then you know there's then then we drift like as we do into other topics, and we talk and we talk and we talk and we talk and we talk. And so, uh, but one thing I am very excited yeah. about doing, having chatted with you, because I have read the reviews, I do want to go out and see the Elvis movie, and I may do that tonight. Oh, you got. I know you're a fan. Uh, you know I'm kind of a freaky fan when it comes to Elvis and his life and 
if you don't know, this is that Baz Luhrmann uh, film, came out June 24th, just titled Elvis. It stars Austin, Austin Butler uh, as Elvis, and Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker. And I read some mixed reviews, so I was a little nervous going into it, especially being such a hardcore Elvis fan. And it was absolutely beautiful. It was so well done in in so many ways. And do they take a, a few liberties, you know, here or there with the storyline? Yeah. You know, just like when we saw the Elton John thing sure. and uh, people complained that maybe the songs were out of order chronologically or, or whatever it is. I just thought it was an absolutely amazing film. Um, and uh, I encourage people to go see it and judge for yourself. Yeah, I well, and I've actually read good reviews. I, I've lots of people say that that the actor who's playing Elvis is fantastic, and um, you know, it's 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 got excitement. For, that's kind of the the common theme is it's just like an exciting. It's not a super long movie, and it sounds like it just it just goes once you once the, once the movie starts it goes and you're just riveted from until yeah. the end and yeah i'm pretty fired up about yeah. seeing it now i really want to check it out and 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 i'd forgotten you were a gigantic elvis I, i'm a, i've read and of course we talked about that if if you if you are a moderate Elvis fan. The book to read—it's it's actually a two-book series. The first is *The Last Train to Memphis*, yes, which follows uh, him from birth through going into the army. And we, we neither of us could remember the, the name army, of the second, yeah. the second, uh, ver, the, the second edition of the book, um, or the second edition, but the the, the last one. I've got it around here. Somewhere. Yeah, but really yeah. great books. And boy, you learn about it, it, it. Those are the most in-depth books on Elvis, and fascinating. Just a fascinating person, you know, considering the time he grew up and where he grew up and his interests and influences yeah. and uh yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna try just so much talent oh, you know yes. he he was that that voice um they show a clip at the very end of the movie uh, near the end of his life which was an actual clip of him performing and regardless of how he had deteriorated that voice never did mm -hmm. and it was it was just stunning. Uh, another thing I wanted to just touch on before we get going is I let off with a video in your morning coffee this week, and the, the title was The Music Industry's Darkest Secret Ever um, uh, by someone who goes by Barely Sociable. And a friend of mine sent it to me, and he said, you got to watch this thing. It's it's like QAnon for the music industry, and it's it's a lot of fun, and you'll you'll just dig it. So I watched it. And it was a lot of fun and it was really well done. And it talks about, you know, maybe how certain labels might be bumping off their artists because they're worth more dead than alive and some of these things. And, but then they covered a couple of areas that I happen to have some inside knowledge about and they were spot on. So I'm not saying that this whole thing is, you know, 100% accurate or not. I, I look at it as entertainment and I hope you do too. But, you know, it's kind of like you and I talked a little bit about the JFK thing there. Even within those conspiracy theories, there are some nuggets of truth that make you go, hmm, was Ronald McDonald involved? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, why would he be wearing the wig and the face makeup all the time if not to disguise himself? Right. Uh, there you go. Yeah. You do. That's the math. right. You do the math. It was in. I watched it. I, I, I jumped around on it and. And it, it did remind me, and we, uh -huh. we did talk about that, because at different times in our life, we have both done sort of deep dives on 
and reading the books on JFK and the assassination. And, you know, a lot of these things are, they're just interesting. You know, they're interesting to read and it is easy to kind of go down the rabbit hole. I, I managed to come up out of the rabbit hole. Yes. That's the trick is you can't stay in the rabbit hole <laughs> for, for any right, of these things. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's worth watching. But it's a lot of fun, yes. right? Yes, it is. You know, it's, it's not like a documentary, you know, that you look at and it's ba- everything is based on fact and is provable and has been researched. You know, some of it is circumstantial. Some of it is someone's opinion. And some of it definitely is based on fact. And they, they cite that. But again, when you watch this, you know, we're not necessarily endorsing this. We're just saying that it was it was it was I laughed through part of it, but it was it was sort of uh, fun to watch. And I, I hope you have a chance. That's right. to check and by it the out. way, I should I should mention that we led in because this is the 99th episode. So I I thought oh, I'd yeah. play the Toto 99. So it's either that or 99 loof balloons. So I, I decided to go with the Toto. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Was was 99 from Toto? Was that from the Get Smart? 99 no, agent or was it something it's different? It's actually you know? from a George Lucas movie, if I'm not mistaken. Was it called THX? Because I think that's what he named the company after. T- that's part of the, the title. I, it, was, it was a movie that George Lucas did. There's some ah, reference to it. Gotcha. But apparently Steve Lukather, who sings it, hates the song. <laughs> so, sorry. Oh, really? Yeah, it, I, I, I liked it. That was off their second album. Um, I think it was came out in 1980 or so. so it's called Hydra. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a good song, and it was the single actually. But he he apparently even for that tour he didn't they didn't do it all that much. Um, anyway, so that's that's. Uh, but I thought it would be fun to to. Uh, it's you know it's kind of hard yeah. to find. It's funny because every artist that write you know every artist that you talk to has some song that they don't really enjoy playing live. And a lot of times it's a big hit. Yeah. You know, you talk to the guys in Cheap Trick about the, you know, their big hit, The Flame, and some of them can't stand that song, you know? And uh, it's just funny. Um, but they'll do it sometimes because it's a fan favorite. And he kills it on that song, singing the uh, Robin Zander. Oh. God, he's just so fantastic. Yeah. Hey, Amazing. by the way, I, I know this yeah. week you actually had a fantastic conversation with Jen Massey. Massey, or how do you pronounce her last name? Massey. Um, yeah, over Masse. at Spotify. And that was yeah. a treat. How did that come about? Well, you and I talk about bots and spin farms a lot on this program, and people reach out fairly regular, if I can say it fairly regularly to me, um, Maddie Elise and Dustin Boyer have written some really great things about how to tell if you've been botted, you know, and, you know, we talk about bots and spin farms and sometimes people are like, well, what's a bot, you know, and, you know, simply put, it's a little piece of software that maybe plays a song over and over again. You know, what's a spin farm? Maybe that's a, a room somewhere that has hundreds of devices, sometimes thousands that play a song over and over and over again. And they do that to jack up, you know, the spin counts. And uh, I was really curious as to, you know, like what's going on with bots and spin farms. So I, I, I reached out to Jen um, and if you don't know who Jen Masse is, she's a global head of indies and commercial partnerships at Spotify. You know, she was formerly, she was their global head of independent label support and head of independent label relations. Um, I first became aware of her when she was a senior uh, director of member services at A2IM. And if you don't know what A2IM is, it's American Association of Independent Music, um, a great uh, organization. Anyway, so I reached out to Jen 
and I send her things from time to time. Like when somebody sends me an email that says, oh, you can get a million streams from this much, you know, for this much money on Spotify. That's disturbing enough. And I get a lot of those, but sometimes they use the Spotify logo and it's really hard and they kind of spoof the email. So it almost looks like it came from Spotify. And so I'll send those over to Jen, you know, and she really appreciates that because they're trying to keep that to a minimum. But as you can imagine, it's probably like whack-a-mole, right? So anyway, long story short, I reached out to Jen and I said, Hey, can I get your thoughts on bots and spin farms? And she said, sure. So here are the three questions that I asked her. And then we'll let it roll and you can hear what she says. Here are the three questions. One, what are bots and spin farms? Number two, how big a problem are illegitimate streams today? And then number three, what can be done about it? So let's let this roll. Here's my uh, quick conversation with Jen Masse from Spotify. Jen, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out of your busy day to talk with me. When, when I read stories about people trying to game the system uh, when it comes to streaming music, I often see terms like bots and spin farms. What exactly are bots and spin farms? All right. So first off, you have like the term bot, which can have numerous definitions. But here at Spotify, we think of artificial streams, which are those typically associated with bots, as those that don't represent genuine listener intent. And a spin farm, on the other hand, is likely a series of devices that are set up to generate streams automatically on particular pieces of content. So how big a problem are artificial streams today? Well, stream manipulation is an industry-wide issue. Um, you know, it's it's not just at Spotify, um, sadly, but also it's, it's industry-wide. Um, and Spotify takes it very seriously. So while the percentage of potentially impacted streams overall is extremely small, that doesn't mean we're okay with it. Um, in fact, we're developing technologies and processes and policies that protect the integrity of the Spotify platform. And that's an area of absolute top priority for us. Um, bad actors, such as those that promise things like playlist placements or a specific number of streams in exchange for money, they violate our terms of service and they encourage stealing legitimate earnings from hardworking and deserving artists and rights holders. We take that very seriously um, as it keeps us from our company mission of a million artists living off their art and giving billions of fans the opportunity to enjoy and be inspired by it taken legal action against bad actors and helped take down artificial streaming companies and markets around the world. Engaging in any way with artificial streams can result in the withholding of manipulated streams from streaming numbers, can withhold royalties, and where necessary, we can remove the tracks from our service. So it ultimately hurts an artist's long-term prospects. Spotify reports the number of artificial streams to our partners on a monthly basis, and we believe that artificial streams are decreasing on a monthly basis and the number of pieces of legitimate content delivered are increasing. So what can be done about this problem besides what you just kind of outlined? Um, what are some things that can be done at the DSP level, but also for artists, managers, labels, distributors? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, so on the Spotify side, we're working to stamp out any artificial streaming activity across our service. We have a um, robust fraud detection team who use uh, best-in-class anomaly detection capabilities and the expertise gained during years of studying abnormal streaming behavior to proactively detect abuse and quickly mitigate the impact of the activity. 
Again, while we can't prevent the abuse from happening, the listeners and artists who use our platform should feel secure that we have technology and a team of experts committed to fighting this issue. Spotify also engages in a range of direct and indirect mitigations in response to fraudulent activity to protect the integrity of our charts. Um, those can include removing artificial users or albums from our platform to more indirect measures of zeroing out streams from royalty, chart, or metric considerations. This means that even when an artificial stream occurs, it's not necessarily counted towards charts, royalties, or other metrics. Um, on the artists, artist managers, labels, and distributors side, um, education is extremely important. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you about it today. Um, we have educational articles and videos on Spotify for artists, which we are, are which are like extremely thorough. We've um, researched them, we've interviewed tons of people, and um, and put those together through our preferred provider program. We ask that any distributor who wants to be listed as preferred on our website also um, is sure to educate their community of distributed artists and labels on um, this issue, um, because we want anyone to understand um, about the types of promotions they should really steer clear of. Thank you so much for taking the time to help us understand this uh, problem, Jen. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jay. Wow, that was great, Jay. What a what an interesting person. Well, of course, perspective is is not exactly correct. What an interesting uh, information from someone who is you know this do deals with this day in and day out. And that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. What a cool, we really appreciate her taking the time. And, you know, again, Jen Masse is an advocate for indie artists and labels. Um, always has been. Um, I had the pleasure of, gosh, I met her for coffee one time. I think it was at the old Spotify offices and she was just so gracious and so kind, you know, with her time, you know, um, and I watch her kind of in in the press whenever she does any kinds of interviews and things like that, because I always come away with a greater understanding of, you know, what she does over there and what they're trying to do uh, for indie artists and labels. So, Jen, thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes to kind of uh, help us understand and wrap our heads around bots yeah. and spin farms. And being, an, being a, a longtime advocate for independent labels and independent artists. Yeah, very important. Yes, sir. By the way, you know, without our sponsors, we could not do the boogie here every week. So we got oh. we got to reach out. I'm going to let you start it with our sponsors. That, man, they just yeah. help, it, help, it do, help us do it every week. Well, we have these great sponsors that we actually use. Um, yeah. You know, the first one, I'll kick it off with Banzoogle. I recently helped a friend who's a publicist, uh, Kim Britton, amazing publicist, used to be Lincoln Park's publicist for like nine years. Anyway, she's she's one of my favorite indie publicists, and, and I helped put together a little website for her, just a, you know, a quick, cool little website, and we did that on Banzoogle. So um, not only are we fortunate to have them as sponsors, but we actually use these products, right? So your morning coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it really easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features that you need for a professional website are built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch, commission-free, that's the key part, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team 
seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to Banzoogle.com and try it for free for 30 days. Use a promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, MORNINGCOFFEE, and that'll get you 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code promo code morning coffee <laughs> and we are also sponsored by hypebot since 2004 hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered consumed marketed and monetized it is edited daily by founder bruce houghton with considerable help from alana bonilla hypebot and sister blog music think tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform bands in town and you betcha Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform, connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. So big, big thanks to Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. And you know what? The guy that I get to chat with all the time, every week, and, Ooh, and even before and after our show, is my none other than Jay Gilbert. He's the co-founder of music marketing and strategy company Label Logic. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and of course, Fox Home Entertainment. Ah, and this guy I get to do this show with every week and uh, maybe even share a few uh, cheeseburgers along the way <laughs> is longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, Mike Etchart. He was also, uh, he worked at SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, Universal Music. Boy, you've been around, Mike. I have a sketchy employment history, Jay. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Very, and that's oh just a boy. few of them. There were some other weird companies in the middle. So it's like, you yeah. know, you when you're in this business, it's, uh, you know, sometimes you got to move. Sometimes they tell you to move. And yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's amazing how many people work. we know. Oh, sorry to walk all over That's you right there. I was just saying, it's amazing how many of the same people we know and have worked with, and then some that we haven't. It's always super interesting for me to hear stories of, you know, your days with EMI or with SST, or, you know, we, we talk about some of these people that we we worked with, some of the characters, and maybe someday we should write a book. <laughs> characters I think that'd be is fun. a very good word to describe many of the people we have worked with <laughs> uh, over the years. Well, then you did the, the sachet over into Fox Home Entertainment, which was a, and we both actually did that. I, I did a stint in the video game business, being a video games producer. You worked over at Fox Home Entertainment, yeah. where you, you get a chance to see kind of the other what it's like outside of the oh, the, yeah. the closed system of music and whole different world. whole different world yeah um, yeah that gig was really interesting because it was international digital strategy nothing in the U S yeah. so everything was U K France Germany Italy Spain and you learn about those cultures more than you did before you learn how they conduct business. And uh, it was really eye-opening for me, and I, I still have some great relationships uh, to this day from those years. But ultimately, it wasn't me. I mean, yeah. um, I was in a mo I was in a meeting one time where, for an hour, uh, two executives um, were basically debating whether a film was action adventure or romantic comedy, <laughs> and that is so. Uh, different from where I came from. Yeah. Look, I loved working for Fox Home Entertainment, but as soon as that was uh, that that contract was over, I I moved back 
uh, to music. Yeah, and my, that was my experience too, guy, because I worked uh, at, at the time in the or mid '90s, the Warner Music Group where I was. They decided, and there have been historically these forays into video games from major entertainment companies because they think, you know, this is pretty close to what we do. We should be in this space. And it is very different, actually. And so so because of that, the Warner Music Group had started an interactive company. And then I kind of stayed in that world for a while. But it's the same thing for me. It's like I was a video games producer. And you know what? I hate video games. (laughs) It's not my thing. (laughs) (laughs) So there I was. And like, okay, I got to get the hell out of here. I mean, I learned a lot. And it was, you know, it's kind of cool to yeah. see that side of the fence, quite frankly. But um, yeah, it's like getting paid to go to school. Yeah, but it informed my next gig because we worked for the advanced technology group at Universal Music. And and that's, you know, having that visibility, and that experience was kind of helpful in that. But whatever. It's right. just, you know, it, it's it. if you work in the entertainment space, it's really hard to. Although you stayed at Universal for a long time, you had a good long career at Universal. Yeah, 18 years. Yeah, that's unheard. There's this great quote from Joe Walsh, and I'll, I'll have to find it. Um, the audio clip of it. My friend uh, and business partner, Jeff Moscow, sent it to me. And I'll, Basically, what Joe Walsh is saying is that your career, when you're in it, looks like these, you know, the series of train wrecks and accidents and weird <laughs> things happening. But then when you get further along in your career and you look back, you see that there's kind of this path and this method to the madness and this knowledge base and this learning and all of this. And, you know, as you get a little bit older and you've had a few of these jobs, you, you come to appreciate all of those stops along the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see that there's a reason kind of you were there. Or or even if there's not yeah. a reason you were there, you you were able to uh, um, accumulate. Yeah, pull something yeah, good, pull something from good it. out yeah. of it. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, that's absolutely. a little story about our past, right? So I think we should jump in because there are some fantastic stories that we are going to talk about today. And oh my gosh, yeah. so much to talk about this week. Indeed. Let's get into Let's it. Let's start with the big one. Uh, this is from Billboard. Songwriter streaming royalties set at 15.1% in the long-awaited CRB ruling. And You and I talk about this a lot, right? Yes. Now remember, this is CRB 3, which has been, you know... Um, it's been challenged. Um, and so what they say here, well, appealed, I guess is the right word. Streaming companies, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Google, were also granted some victories in this too. So we'll go through this. But remember, we, we talk about this a bunch, but it can be a little bit confusing. So let's just simplify it. This is the last copyright royalty board ruling and that it was being appealed. Right now, we're in CRB4. Mm-hmm. This is CRB3, and we'll dig in in just a second. Um, but the, the CRB4 or Phono Records 4, you know, that's currently underway, and this is going to determine really the statutory streaming royalty rates that are paid to songwriters from next year, 2023, through 2027. That's CRB4. So at that trial, the CRB4 trial, and remember all of these are these trials that go before judges, the, uh, the NMPA, you know, they're asking for a fourth revenue stream, a per stream payment. Um, and so on the percent of revenue model, they want 20%. Uh, total content cost, TCC, and we'll go over that in a second, 40%. And then a prescriber, per subscriber, subscriber rate of $1.50 per month, and then a per stream rate. So that's CRB4. CRB3, we've been waiting for this for a while um, to find out 
because it was being appealed. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. So on this last Friday, the CRB announced this long-awaited determination for for CRB 3, or Phono Records 3, favoring songwriters and publishing by raising mechanical streaming rates from 10.5% to 15.1%. And this is over the years 2018 to 2022, which are just about over. So there will be retro payments for this. But this has been in appeal for all these years. Exactly. But as they point out, overall, the rate determination is being described as a mixed decision or a draw, with the digital service providers also getting some of the things that they wanted from their successful appeal, which resulted in the remand back to the CRB judges. This includes the CRB's decision to return the total content cost Get out your TCC. get out your acronym decoder ring and type in TCC is. is total content cost and bundle definitions to phono records two levels. So so we're talking about four different, as they say, phono records uh, um, years. So the, so I guess phono records right. two would be uh, twenty ending in twenty seventeen. So. They're going back. It says, as well, according to a press release from the National Music Publishers Association, that's the NMPA, the other bucket for the all-in pool, which has been escalating from 22 to 26.1% during the five-year term ending in 22, is now set back to the old levels. While the press release didn't specify that amount, previously the other bucket for the all-in pool, which includes both performance and mechanical royalties, had been 21% of what's paid to labels. And even more importantly, the new rate determination puts back in a cap on that bucket, according to sources. So it is, it's really, you know, it's it's super confusing, actually, because we're talking yeah. about so many different year periods and, and, the, and those phono record eras and all of these changes are going backwards and, 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 and kind of retroactively changing things and, and changing the landscape, which is, it's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, and it's not so simple. Right. It's not just that this one rate is being increased uh, to your point. Um, there are parts where give and take maybe, you know, yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I read this really great piece from Tim Ingham, you know, our, our favorite over at music, uh, music, music business, business worldwide. worldwide. Yep. Yeah. And he said, let, you know, let's refresh your memory. In, in January of 2018, songwriters enjoyed a major victory when the CRB ruled that songwriter publisher royalty rates for streaming and other mechanical uses was to rise significantly in the U.S., right? That ruling centered on an increase in the overall percentage of streaming services U.S. revenue that legally have to be paid you know, by the likes of Spotify to to songwriters, usually via their publishers. So the CRB decided to move that percentage from 10.5% to 15.1% across the five years, 2018 to 2022. And this was the largest rate increase in the history of the CRB. However, Spotify and other companies, including Amazon, Google, um, but not Apple, uh, subsequently launched a legal appeal uh, against the new rates, arguing they were unjustified. And that's really what's just been settled is, yeah, you're you're going to need to you're going to need to pay that. But beyond that headline rate, this is where it gets a little bit uh, more complicated. It wasn't just that percent of of revenue increase. There's that percent of TCC uh, that you talked about, total content costs. So you get one or the other. Mm-hmm. You don't get both yeah. the way that I understand it. So, you know, 
he said that beyond the headline rate rise, there's some mixed news for songwriters. So really quickly, when the CRB initially ruled, you know, this new streaming rate in 2018, it said that streaming services would either have to pay songwriters that rate if it resulted in a higher figure um, or the platforms would pay up to 26.2% of their quote unquote total content costs across records and publishing. So they put a cool little chart in the, in Tim Ingham's article where they talk about like in 2018, the percent of revenue, you know, would go from, you know, 11.4% to 2019 to 12.3 on and on up to 2022, where it would be 15.1. Well, that's already passed. Sure. And so now there's these retro payments, you know, whichever is larger, that percent of revenue or that percent of TCC. And I don't remember talking much in the previous times we've talked about this is as are these caps. So that was kind of, you know, reading this thing that that was that was something that I wasn't super familiar with. So it's interesting to see that 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 in fact, you know, was one of the reasons that that they went back to try to the the, the, the major content distributors wanted to go back and and revise it. Um, so, you know, like like everything in publishing. <laughs> Man, it's super complex. Lots of acronyms, lots of you know different years we're talking about. So it's really you do need uh, you do need notes to kind of come back and really understand exactly all the moving parts in this. But yeah, it's yeah, it, it is it it is it is something that is is um, you know again when we worked in labels, the publishing world was so it was just over there you know we 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 didn't necessarily spend too much time thinking about it but it's so crucial to the industry a but also it's really when we're talking about the 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 move to streaming understanding this stuff is super super important oh yeah and it's now it's in everybody's ears yeah. uh, we're talking about it so much more now than we ever have and i think there's a greater understanding about it but what makes this interesting is that there isn't a clear cut winner or loser yeah. in this, that it's really kind of everybody's sort of winning, I think, in this, because, you know, you talk about people that we know and and have a, a pretty decent relationship with and speak with about these things in the press, people like, uh, you know, DEMA president, uh, Garrett Levin, mm -hmm. you know, he said that streaming services thank the judge for their efforts. He said today's decision reflects a significant increase in the royalties that will be paid to publishers. The work to give, you know, effects uh, to these new rates will soon begin in earnest and that the streaming services are committed to working with the MLC and the music publishing companies to facilitate accurate dis distribution of royalties. So, you know, you talked about that cap, we talk about TCC, but really the big headline that you see across the internet this week was that it went from 10.5% yeah. to 15%. Uh, and that is 15.1%. That's that's a nice increase uh, for songwriters. Yes, yes, it is a, a well deserved increase, and um, but it, it was not a total victory. And all as these things are, um, you gotta you gotta get below the headline and dig a little deeper and kind of see the the right. as they say the devil is in the details. And um, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's you know here's and this is CRB three, right? We have to stress that that this is something that was really already agreed to, but then was appealed. Yep. So um, now that goes, you know, 
uh, was it eight, 2018 to 2022. Now we're starting to talk about that CRB4 that I mentioned. And there's that's a whole new negotiation. And we'll definitely keep everybody, you know, up to speed on that because that's going to set the rates for 2023 uh, through 2027. Yeah, and I think doesn't that go into effect this summer? It's it's not. Is it? I can't remember if it's a calendar year change or if it's a fiscal year change. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's coming. And boy, without a doubt, we will be talking about this so much more in the future because now that we all know about it, and now that it's there is a, more of an understanding of how the sausage is made, as you would say. Um, it's something. It's going to be a hot topic of discussion, and you know, we're gonna, yeah. There's there's another great article you you uh, put in the in the newsletter. Also, for, uh, it was no, it wasn't from Billboard or was it Billboard? It was from uh, this was on the songwriters uh, charge new fees to survive, but asking is risky. That was yes. a really interesting article as well, um, talking about how you know, and, and you've mentioned so many times in the past. It's so different now. One of the not only do the songwriters have these challenges of of the change from physical to streaming, but also the the complexity now of how many different songwriters are typically involved in the composition of songs. You know, you you'll see it's not un, un it's not uncommon to see four, five, six songwriters, and so they're getting increasingly smaller slices of the pie in general, no matter what the income is, the revenue from that song. Yeah, and so it's really yeah. it, it's a it, the landscape has changed so dramatically, not only you know financially, but just in terms of the creation of the art. So it's right, very, very different. Right. And with streaming, it changed. A, a songwriter client of mine told me the other day that it's such a different world now with streaming because it used to be you know you might get nine point one cents you know per song on the ten songs that were on a CD or whatever, and that when somebody bought an album, it was thought of as each song was equal. But with streaming, there are certain songs that aren't performing and certain ones that maybe blow up. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole different world at how you look at it financially. And you mentioned that that article in, in uh, Billboard. It was Billboard, um, yeah. Songwriters charge new fees to survive. Um, we didn't have time to cover that today, but check it out in your morning coffee because now certain songwriters are asking for other ways of uh remuneration that's right, right? they're looking the for end. other ways of it wants to be an end yeah yes. with with getting revenue maybe in that advances. writing process yeah. maybe yeah, yeah. It, it advances maybe it's part of a salary maybe it's part of uh, other ways of compensating them and certain songwriters can get it um, if you have some of that demand, some of them, if you're not as established, maybe you can't. But I thought that was really interesting, too. This whole thing is now evolving after being the same since the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. Now things are really starting to pick up steam. It, it seems like it's moving at a palatial or a glacial, the right word I'm looking for. Glacial. glacial. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds like palatial. It does. Glacial. Um, a glacial pace is what I was trying to say. Yeah. And. But it's really not. It's actually moving quite quickly. Yes, but it is. It is super complex, and and as as I sort of alluded to, um, you know, if you if you've spent time at labels over your career, it's not something you were necessarily always aware of how the publishing world works, and it is fascinating. And like you said, it it, it far. Um, in terms of age, the publishing business has been around much longer than the recorded music industry. And these little nuances uh, of publishing in general and then the 
rapid change to streaming and boy, it has just upended everything. And we have all new players. Yeah. It used to be the labels that were kind of pushing back on mechanical royalties, but now all these, the DSPs. So it's fascinating and we will continue to watch this space because damn it, yes, that's, sir. that's what we do, Jay. That's just what we do. That's what we do. For crying out loud. Absolutely. Uh, this this yes, next sir. one is really interesting too. This is from Hypebot. Uh, this is, says, musicians, colon, the algorithm doesn't owe you but it definitely owns you <laughs> oh best best headline of the week absolutely yeah so this is an open it got my attention it really did yeah it, it's an open letter as hypebot uh, does these things periodically from uh okay i'm gonna guess sam's last name do you know sam the pronunciation of sam's is it Sideman? i don't i was guessing i was guessing Sideman or Sadaman. It, it could be one of the other. yes he is the ceo and co-founder sorry of, sam <laughs> and then I'm gonna. I might even butcher the name. He's the CEO and co-founder of. I'm gonna guess it's Innovo Management. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna go with that. Okay, sure. Um, so he, it's this is an open letter to late adopters and their teams, so to speak, and it's talking about. Um, uh, the quest for a cheat code that doesn't exist and offers a path forward to success. By the way, I'm looking for that too, just in general, in life. So financially yeah. or everything. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you know when I find it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. But it's, you know, it, the, the headline is certainly scary. And would you in generally, you know, you, you talk with artists far more than I am right now. Um, you know, do, do you think musicians kind of grasp this? Well, I think there's different levels. Um, some don't even want to get involved in this right. and rely on their management. Um, some are deep into it. I think a lot of the younger artists today are really savvy and they dig in and they understand TikTok, Twitch and Triller and you know Roblox and some ways of maybe monetizing that weren't there years ago. Um, but you and I talk about some of these writers that we like, like, you know, Will Page and people like, uh, Glenn Peoples and Chris Castle and these people who are a little bit sassy. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think of the Sam yes. Sadaman. Uh, I'll just read like just the first couple of sentences. I, I thought this was really interesting. And then we'll dig into some of these topics because I think they're really important. But he says, high horses were meant to show a person's power, not to take un unsubstantiated stances to avoid doing the work. Let's climb down off that high horse and get real. Every marketer, musician, record label, and general industry person is trying to quote-unquote crack the code. Seeing people's growth on TikTok is leaving folks thinking that others are winners of the algorithm's golden ticket, when in reality, all that needs to be done is to stop investigating how to cut corners and instead start invest, investing time and energy into creation. And I say, amen. Absolutely. Because, you know, you can't game the system. And if you do, you can't game it for long. And there's really no substitute for just hard work. We were talking to uh, an artist management team about TikTok and they were willing to put in the time. And he goes into it in this piece yes. about how much time and how much energy into creating that and what you get from it. And it's like a lot of things. You get out of it what you put into it. If you have the time and uh, the great music, great performance, all of that, and the, the energy to put into some of these platforms, you'll see results. But if you just do kind of a shotgun approach and try to be everything to everyone, 
that rarely works. Exactly. As he says, TikTok has democratized social media. It has allowed independent artists to suddenly be on an even playing field with major label artists with reaching new untapped audience. Uh, the app exploded onto the scene with its short form video style that custom curates a feed for your page to each consumer. Non-TikTok users think of this like you discovery weekly on Spotify. What does this mean for your clients, for yourself? Post unique and exciting content, reach new potential customers. For musicians, the impact has been felt globally. Tons of independent artists without any infrastructure are being approached overnight by team members, management labels, producers, publishers, etc. to have a real run at a career. The mm -hmm. best part, and as he points out, it's free to use. But I will come back to something for everyone. For everyone, right? I will come back to you and I. Again, we talk about this a lot too. It's like, okay, not only do you got a great, great songs, some you or somebody has to be aware of all of these opportunities in this space. And is yeah. is that a yeah. is are those skill sets uh, uh, matched, or is that a completely different? Sometimes thing? not. Sometimes not. Right. I mean, sometimes you need to find somebody. Well. I'll back up. You don't have to be on every single platform. No. And you don't have to be good at every single platform. You find out where your tribe is, where your audience is, and double down there. And I think that's what he's saying here. Yes. What I really loved about this, this is one of the most reasonable, deliberate, and thought out um, pieces about TikTok. And, and this is the part that really hit home for me. He said that one way to attack, you know, like TikTok, is by utilizing consistency and creativity to get potential new fans over. And I couldn't agree with that more. He said it's important to distinguish if the goal is to immediately convert to music consumers or instead build an audience that loves the creator and then over time drive that audience wherever it makes sense. And I think that's so important. He uses one example of this artist of his uh, that goes by Danny G, right? Mm -hmm. And he said that Danny utilized this um, this athletic background uh, to start creating a large amount of content in the sports, you know, kind of skit based lane. You know, with an immediate proof of concept, we transitioned 2022 into an initiative we created called hashtag 10kin22. Danny is posting. You ready for this? Ten thousand pieces of content Gosh. this year. That's roughly 27 pieces of content a day across these social platforms. Now, let's put a pin in that for a second. We talked about this last week and the week before how there are certain artists that'll just blow up on TikTok, but typically it comes with some hard work. It's like that overnight success came with years of planning or, or years of work. And I love what he's talking about with Danny G. And we talked about this with an artist called Jake. Uh, the JVKE uh, that they did the video about a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. That happened because of a lot of work. I hate using the word content, but I will. A, creating a ton of content and having a regular uh, cadence, a regular release, and a plan of, of having that content out to grow your audience. If you're just going to post once a week or once every couple of weeks, that's not going to be enough to do it typically. Right. I want to swing back to something that you, you touched on, but he, he, the beginning he also said it's important to distinguish if the goal is to immediately convert to music consumers or instead build an audience that loves the creator. You know, yes. when we talk about the difference between the old and the new school music business, or the old and the new music business, I should say, um, 
you know, back in the days when we were market, when we were working with artists, um, you know, people, people that don't work in the music business, they would say, you know, on that first album of an artist, wouldn't you like to have a, a big hit single? And it's like, no, I don't, I don't want people to fall in love with a song because that next album might not have a song that, that is fallen lovable enough. You want them to fall in love with the artist. And that, that takes time. And that's the hardest thing to do within a major label uh, yes. situation typically because, you know, it's, but that's historically has been the best way to develop long-term artists, which is to get people to fall in love yeah. with the artist. And that has not changed, right. I think, in terms of artist development, no matter what, whether it's new music business or the old business, that's still the way I think, which is I want them to fall in love with the creator, not necessarily the content of that, of that minute, of that day, I of that week. I think if you would talk to an artist manager, they would agree with you 100%. You want that song to pull you in, and then that makes you explore yes. the other songs on that album or EP, and then you want to see them live, and you want to buy their merch and things. I have this debate with a friend of mine pretty regularly about the music business today, how disposable mm -hmm. some of it is. And he, he kind of disagrees that, you know, he thinks it's better in many ways. I think that they're artist development is still here today, but it's not in the forefront that it once was when you and I were growing up in the business. And there was a lot more tolerance for artist development and taking the time to develop an, uh, an artist. And you did that with a, a lot of touring, but you also did it with a lot of, you know, you would release a song and that song would pull people in. I wonder sometimes today with these flash in the pan sort of big hits, whether it's coming from a, a TikTok um, influencer or star that just kind of blows up. And we've seen this recently with people who have had some massive tracks, but then can't fill up a venue. They can't sell a yeah, t-shirt. Right. Not all of them, but some of them. So I think there's this balance that you reach in those things that you just described. Are you looking for commerce or are you looking for artist development? And I would say the conversations I have with developing artists, we always focus on audience growth and not revenue. Yeah. There isn't a ton of revenue in sales streams and downloads for developing and middle-class artists. You and I talk about this a lot. So what do you do? Well, while you're growing that audience, that audience can stay with you for a long time and will not that you're just primarily thinking of them as revenue, but that's what they are and they can be, they'll buy your products for years and years and years. You and I are very loyal fans of certain bands and regardless of what they put out, we're going to support them. We're going to go see them live. We're going to buy those t-shirts, but to get to that point, to your point, it has to be bigger than just some big moment, some big song. Yeah, exactly. But now, talking about this stuff, you know, what, what he says, another way to attack this is by finding a hyper-specific niche or niche and carving out a lane with it. And that is yeah. also a really important thing to, you know, it's it's you don't want to just go out there and, and try to compete with whomever who is big and huge or, or be a copycat of what's happening, find that hyper-specific niche. And they, they talk about uh, this uh, classical composer and pianist named uh, Kelsey Woods, uh, who fell in love with the book series A Court of Thorns and Roses. She started creating scores for different scenes within the book as a fun and low-expectation side project. As a composer who scores films, the idea to score a book series came originally to organically to her. She started to post them on TikTok, and this 
community of A Court of Thorns and Roses, uh, loved how she created an entirely new medium for their world. She didn't find a, a niche and leech, and leech onto it. She read the books, loved them, and used that affinity as a pair, as a pair with her skill sets. So she had that organic... It was genuine. Yeah, it's totally genuine. And the success of this unique and very specific project has allowed her to release these songs as singles on DSPs. The growth in just eight months of doing this has resulted in 44,000 plus TikTok followers that are all dedicated fans of the mm-hmm. Akatar, which that is community. the Court of Thorns and Roses, which I'm not familiar with until reading this. Uh, community, she's now started releasing these scores as singles with book-adjacent art that has resulted in 7,700 new Spotify follows, 500,000-plus Spotify streams on a single, and there's now Reddit threads talking about her in this world for this book series. So right. what a lovely story. You know, she, she just something... Well, kind it, of I think it all comes thing. back to... It's yeah, it's a passion thing. It's really true to who she is. Mm-hmm. And I think you find that with a lot of these successes, whether it's on TikTok or other platforms, is that a lot of them aren't chasing a trend and they're not trying to be like someone else. You know, when Billie Eilish first broke, there weren't many artists that sound like Billie Eilish, right? When when Olivia Rodrigo really popped at that time, there weren't a lot that were sounding like her. Now, of course, immediately there are people who will imitate that. But I think these people who have the success are like this example that you point to. If you can find what is genuine and true to you and your music, what you're doing, and then amplify that, um, I think that's where the magic happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. So really, as always, a, a wonderful thing to start considering and and fun to hear about You know what, what different people's perspective is on all of these things. But I think at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about hard work and consistency, you know, this is something your grandparents would have told you. And, you know, you and I have talked about this with just this podcast, which is the average podcast lasts seven episodes. That's right. And it's really hard to grow an audience, but you have to just keep sticking with it. And um, consistency, consistency and integrity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So great piece by Sam Sademan. I think that's how you pronounce it from mm-hmm. Anovo. Great job, Sam. We, uh, we loved your piece in HypeBot and uh, got some really great feedback this week. Yes. And our last story, Jay, is also from HypeBot. And this is something that we've talked about, I think, at least once before. Uh, why are CDs trending in 2022? Um, and it's to get, you know, obviously nearly two decades since their peak popularity. They're having a moment. But how long will it last? This is from James Shotwell over at Howlix. And Howlix is a, it's a marketing uh, Holix. Holix. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's not Howlix, it's Holix. Holix. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so as he says, he does a lot of stuff for, for HypeBot. Um, and, you know, we followed his stuff in the past mm-hmm. and he, he's, he's been around a while. And uh, I think if you look at the bottom, you know, he's, he's written for like Rolling Stone yeah, and, that, yeah. you know, um, some other places. And, uh, you know, he's the director of customer engagement at Holix and he posts these videos to HypeBot and we really enjoy a lot of those. Um, the CD kind of uh, what they're calling a, a revival and we've talked to Tony Van Veen over at Disc Maker, so we've been aware of this for a while. There's a lot of reasons for it. Um, I think people dismissed CDs maybe a little prematurely. Mm-hmm. Sounds like vinyl, right? Um, but the other thing is, I was talking to Terry Courier from Music Millennium and since there's such a problem getting certain vinyl titles yeah. that people may come in looking for vinyl 
eh, maybe they can't find the title that they're looking for and they'll buy a CD. So that's part of it. There's been some adult titles like Adele that have certainly overperformed, but there's that every year. Sure. Right. And as my, uh, my business partner, Jeff Moscow will point out, I think the average age of a car in the United States is something like 11 or 12 years. And there's still a lot of CD players out there. Um, I've only got one, um, but it's not in my car, but a lot of people do still have CD players. And the other part that I talk to um, artists about a lot is you, you want something for your merch table, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're having trouble getting vinyl, you're running out of certain sizes of shirts or whatever it is, CDs are very cheap yes. uh, to make and you can get them very quickly. You know, we use disc makers and they can turn them around really inexpensively, like less than $2 a pop and get, you know, our orders complete within a week or two is not uncommon. So people go to your show and they want to have a souvenir of that show and, you know, maybe something they can have signed. And uh, the CD is still a very inexpensive thing and I just love that it's still around. Absolutely. And to, to kind of put a, an exclamation point, uh, let's see, where are the numbers here? Here they are. Um, so according to data from the RAA, shipments of compact discs rose from 31.6 million in 2020 to 46.6 million in 2021, which is a rise of 47%. Uh, you got a revenue increase from uh, from 483 million to 584 million dollars. The last time sales of CDs were on the up was check this out way back in 2004. So that's really interesting, actually, really yeah. interesting. And I, you know, are yeah. you? And I, I, I need to kind of ask my kids about this. Um, you know, I'm still, and this is probably my age, I still have some ownership um, anxiety when it comes to streaming. It's like there's certain things oh, that yeah. I still want to own. And, oh, absolutely. And I don't, I don't know where yeah. that cutoff is age-wise. Uh, well, my, my daughters don't really have that anxiety, but there are certain things that they need to have either on vinyl mm -hmm. or that they want to have physically. Um, so I don't think it's just, you know, um, older folks. And I learned something from this piece that I, I hadn't really considered. And that is that he points out that in the world of K-pop, you know, that's a lot of young listeners, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Worldwide. And that's been really a, a big deal. K-pop, he said that, you know, they look at music as a keepsake and that physical media releases in this genre often include things like photographs, merch items, right. unique packaging, right? And that, you know, fans, collectors want to have that. And then I think of a behavior that's very common to someone like you or me is someone will release, you know, uh, a box set. Like I bought the Queen vinyl yeah. box set, you know, with all of the studio albums on different color vinyl with a coffee table book. And there's this new uh, Elton John set that's out. And, you know, I like the new Tears for Fears tipping point. There's certain things physically that come with bonus things. And I love having... I'm a big fan of the booklet. I love box sets. I was a big fan of like Rhino Records, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day and Gary Stewart and all the great sets that they would put out and they came with these cool booklets and I just loved that immersive experience and that still happens today. Every year there's new killer box sets that come out and, you know, you can find them at indie retail um, some of these things are record store day, um, exclusives. Yeah. You can find things online. Um, 
if you ever want to dig deep into that rabbit hole, I don't know if we've talked about this before, Mike, but um, I'm a big fan of Discogs. Oh, yeah. You ever, you ever, oh, you ever play around with that absolutely. site? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Talk about rabbit and, holes. Uh, <laughs> God. Yeah, it's, it's super cool to go in there. Um, I was having uh, lunch yesterday um, with uh, David Brookings from Apple, and he showed me... We were talking Beatles, and he showed me this uh, rare Beatles album that he had that I'd never heard of. Really, it was a promotional thing, and I, I sure you know, I look on Discogs, there it is, right? Mm. I mean, this thing's worth like thirteen hundred dollars for this one promotional album because there were so very few of them uh, that were made. But you know, if you're a Beatles completist, you know, you you have to have that. But kind of coming back to the herd here, I still love these bigger sets that are they're bigger than the music it's about yeah the photos and the imagery and the and all of that the narrative and just the tactile uh, i know i sound like i'm 100 years old right now but <laughs> it's not just me i know young people are buying these things too yeah yeah well and it's just again it's it's a um uh it's an exclamation point on the concept that be creative and find out what your audience is like and and don't just stick to streaming don't just stick to vinyl you know th think of lots of different ways of of giving your fans things to buy or things to accumulate or things to to cherish because that's what it's all about you know that is what it's all about and so i'm kind of happy to see you know i i, I I still have a lot of CDs and I still pull them out. And there's, you know, let's yeah. not forget, there are lots of titles that are not on the streaming services. A lot that of That is stuff. a great point and, that gets missed. Mm -hmm. I know there's so many tracks. I think there's like 80 million tracks today on DSPs, which sounds amazing. And it is, especially since you can, you know, access them on this little device. But to your point, there are a lot of things that aren't up. Either they can't find the masters or they don't have the rights. I was talking to a friend of mine about certain soundtracks because they were only licensed yes. for a Limited term, time, yes. for a thing. And now you want to go back and get some of these great soundtracks and it would be almost impossible to clear it legally. Yes. Um, so there's a lot of reasons for those things. It's not only compilations, but it's just certain artists. And so I, I hung on to a lot of... CDs, and then there's some that are sentimental value. Either they're signed, or they're promotional things um, that were put out that weren't put out on the general market. I still have the Japanese import CD of Abbey Road, which came out many years yes. before uh, Capital allowed the Beatles to be released. And it's you know the booklets in Japanese, and um, it was just taken off the market so quickly. So it's just a nice little conversation piece, but. I'll leave it like this. I, I still love going to shows and supporting the artist. When I go see a, an artist play, especially a developing artist, I go to the merch table and I, and I get something yeah. to, to help support them. And, you know, sometimes uh, they'll have like a lot of EPs or CD singles or albums or whatever on CD. And I just love getting those, collecting those, having those to, to support that artist. Absolutely. Absolutely. But great piece again from Hypebot. And so, uh, many, many yeah. interesting things to consider if you are an artist or an artist manager, or just kind of, you know, how do you approach this world of physical items to be available for your fans? And 
Yeah, and you mentioned in in the intro, you know, we as Hypebot is a sponsor, and we thank them, uh, Alana Bonilla, and she actually uh, put this one together. Yes, good job, Alana. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Jay, uh, it's time to wrap up episode number ninety nine. We will be in triple digits. How about Ooh. that next week? Exactly. Very exciting. And big thanks to everyone that has continued to listen to the podcast, Jay and I cannot thank you enough. We really, really do appreciate that, and we do not take it for granted. So thanks to our sponsors, thanks to our listeners, and we are so excited to keep chugging along and start to hit uh, episode number 100 next week. We are very stoked and very appreciative. So on that note, everyone have a wonderful, we are recording this on, oh, you're going to get this actually on the 4th of July. So I hope everyone here, at least in the U.S., has a lovely 4th of July, and hopefully you are off and not working. So Yay for that, and thanks for joining us. We will be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.